17, where we'll be in just a few minutes. Uh, still looking at uh, some benefits of church membership. It's going to be a place of identity, a place of uh, sanctity, a place of activity. I'm going to uh, share with you a, a little anecdote. I want you to picture this in your mind. Uh, that uh, dad wakes up with a start as mom nudges him. It's still dark outside as he notices that uh, mom's been up already for some time and she's already dressed. And as she steps outside their dirty hovel, dad wakes up the boys. Uh, the boys want to sleep more, of course. Uh, but dad's nudges are more than suggestions, so they get up. And in the darkness, Dad and his two teenage sons dress quickly. They join Mom outside for a quick splash of cold water on their faces. She hands them uh, each a large piece of bread as they step into the cool, moist morning fog, and they're eating as they go. Now, through the courtyard, they are very careful to uh, watch their step. Uh, they don't want to wake up anybody else. Quietly, they open the front gate. They step out into the cobblestone street, looking both ways into the darkness, and they head out into the country. The year is about 75 A.D., by our reckoning. Uh, our Lord has been seated at his Father's right hand in heaven for about 40 years now. The great apostle Paul, who first brought the gospel to this small Greek village by the sea, was beheaded about eight years earlier. Dad and mom and the boys never knew Paul personally, though they had heard a great deal about him, but they now do know and serve the same Jesus that Paul, Paul preached. See, this family is a family of slaves. They're slaves who know Jesus Christ as their Savior personally. And since they have become Christians, they have begun to thank God for the wealthy man that owns them. Uh, even though he is, himself is not saved yet, they're still praying that he comes to Christ. They're also grateful that he allows them to rise up early on Sundays and go to worship out in the country. Uh, as long as they don't disturb him and as long as they continue to faithfully discharge their duties, then they're free to do this and they count that as a blessing. Now, they also pray fervently that the man that owns them uh, will get converted soon and that he won't sell them off individually, uh, you know, breaking up their families so they will in all likelihood never see each other again this side of eternity. They seem to be almost uh, constantly aware of their utter dependence on God and his grace for, for living. And this little... Uh, congregation with whom this family will worship it's the only congregation of christians for for miles around and if they want to join together in fellowship and in worship and in instruction and in exhortation it it has to be done here now let's take another note of of another scene it's about 8 30 when mom finally gets dad out of bed the sun's high in the sky at least it would be if it was summer, right? Uh, the dew is long gone, and uh, Ma, by the time Mom gets out of bed, it's the third try when she calls the boys to get up. But they stay in bed uh, because they know that they have until try number six or try number seven before she'll get angry enough to actually enforce her will and make the boys get up. Dad ignores the whole scene down the hall. The only reason he got up 
was because he couldn't wait any longer to go to the bathroom. All morning long, the family takes their time, mom at the vanity, dad at the mirror shaving. The boys take forever in the shower and then at the breakfast table, but they finally get dressed. It's Sunday and mom wants to go to church. And after some persuasion, dad reluctantly orders the boys to get ready. They want to stay home, hoping that mom and dad will take in some of that television religion, but mom says no, and strangely enough, dad backs her up and tells the boys to get moving. Although the family does go to church, they arrive late, not even trying to make Sunday school. They're oblivious to the disruptions of the song service as they sit as far back as they can. So they'll be able to leave during the closing of the service, or they'll be able to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the pastor's message, or try to get a drink of water because they're going to die of thirst before the service is over. Um, what are the differences between these, these two families? Well, about, about 2,000 years would be one difference. Uh, slavery and obstacles to attending church conveniently, that would be another one. Uh, maybe maybe self-discipline would, would be a third. But the one difference that I want us to focus on this morning is, is their understanding. Uh, the modern family all too often does not behave as though they have an understanding of the importance of their church. You see, the ancient family realized that their church was the lighthouse of truth in the midst of, of what is basically a sea of paganism. Uh, it was the place of instruction in the midst of gross spiritual ignorance. It, it was the haven of love and sacrificial giving in the midst of a world of selfishness and, and, and materialism. I suppose you might say that, that the world they lived in was, was conducive to their understanding of the importance that uh, the place of their church had in their spiritual life. But in our time, church doesn't, um, it doesn't appear to be as unique to us as it did to them. Someone once said that familiarity breeds contempt. But if the modern version of Christians are not contemptuous of their churches, they have at least lost the reverence for church. And I think there are several reasons why this has taken place. First, because today there are, there's a lot of substitutes for the kind of church that's spoken of in the New Testament. Uh, competing for Christians' attentions, for their prayer, for their money, for their loyalty. There's all sorts of television ministries. There's a myriad of radio ministries. Are these bad? Well, maybe, maybe not. You have to take each one, uh, one at a time. But I reckon they, they, they could have some good potential. They can be helpful. They can be good supplement. But if they're used as a substitute for your church then no matter how good they might be, you will have made them bad then. In the local community here, we see men's and women's Bible studies disconnected from any church. There's parachurch organizations. The list would go on and on and on if we tried to name each one of them. You see, no such competition existed in 75 AD because no such diversions as we have mentioned here have you know they're they're not found in scripture we find the local churches and that's what we find secondly Christians actually have begun to believe that believers are supposed to be perfect the way they are now I, I, I say that facetiously because we like to be around people 
who are like we are. Okay? And, and, and people who are, who are not like we are tend to make us uncomfortable. Uh, but churches are, they're supposed to be repositories of many different kinds of people. There are to be rich and poor. There are to be literate and illiterate. There are to be handsome and unhandsome and cultured and crude. So for one reason or another, with all their lack of perfections, churches have lost their attractiveness to many who only want to be around people that are like them. It's almost a spiritual xenophobia, afraid of outsiders. And when there are people too different from us, we judge them unworthy to be in our company, and that's to our shame. You know very well that as important as the church was to those in 75 AD, as vital as the ministry of the church was in their lives, as exalted as was her position in the plan and purpose of God, then the same is true today. We need to understand the importance of our church. And we will, if we will allow God to order our priorities, to order our ways, to direct our actions in regard to this. I want you to follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Just, just two verses. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now there's, there's, there's three pieces of information uh, that we're going to look at that we want to deal with this morning, and it's in hopes that we can each be encouraged to maybe remind each other of the importance of our church, this congregation of born-again, scripturally baptized believers. What we see, first of all, number one, is a place of identity place of identity now we can often figure out what the problems were in the people that you know like Paul and, and 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 Peter and John were writing to by what they wrote all right so so what was the problem in Paul's day well as as we heard earlier you know early Christians had no problem understanding the uniqueness of their church but they did have a problem with the church's spiritual identity and we know that because Paul instructs them on their identity see people in those days grew up in a very very religious culture okay uh, man is religious even when he is ungodly right? he is still religious but in their in their cultural orientation religious life was was necessarily focused around some religious building some some temple of some kind and Paul solved their problem by simply observing that buildings are not necessary for true religion. As a matter of fact, we who are genuinely converted, scripturally baptized, who worship uh, the truth, uh, you know, worship in spirit and in truth, who worship the true and living God together here, we are a temple. Paul's exact words are, know ye not that ye are a temple of God. And the word ye means, means y'all. I think Paul was Southern. You all, okay, yuns, depending on what part of the country you're from. 
It's plural. He's talking about the assembly. He's talking about the group gathered together. The elaborate buildings on the surrounding hills were not really temples. They were spiritual brothels. Their church, on the other hand, that congregation of born-again, scripturally baptized people was, in all reality, the temple of the one true and living God in that town. So their identity problem was quickly solved. They had been informed about the true identity of their church. Now, what then is the problem in our day? Well, I mean, there, there are people who, who look at cathedrals and that kind of thing as, as, as holy buildings. But, but folks usually abandon those kind of notions after they trust Christ as Savior. By and large, the idea of, of, of holy geography uh, is, is kind of outmoded in our society. Our problems arise um, to the uniqueness of the church in, in our day of, of, of denominations and conventions, societies, seminars, uh, armies, associations, brotherhoods, crusades, and it can go on and on and on. Uh, this passage singles out a local church as the unique temple of God. I, I'm not being cruel. I'm not attacking them. I, I, I simply want to state that, that a gospel-preaching, Christ-exalting, Bible-believing church like this one is the temple of God in Juno. We're not the only temple of God in Juno. There's other churches in Juno that, 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 that are very much like us in faith and practice, they are also temples of God in Juno. says, what? Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And his remarks were directed to the church of God at Corinth. That is their identity. That is who they are. That is what we are. You notice, secondly, this is a place of, of sanctity. In verse 16, you'll notice that Paul writes, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Now, now pay attention to the word dwelleth, okay? It's, in, it's important here. Several things are implied by this word dwelleth. First of all, it's ownership. And although we, we know that, that, that the church is Christ's, in a very real way, the church is also uh, the Holy Spirit. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. It is his, and therefore, he will do in it as he pleases. The second thing is permanency. The Holy Spirit abides in the midst of us. He plans on staying, and he will not leave without taking us with him. Then there's the presence. This is perhaps the most important thing that we ought to note here. The Holy Spirit of God is in our congregation in a way that he is not in any other kind of assembly or any other kind of group. The Holy Spirit of God is in our congregation in a way that he is not in any other, whether it's lost or saved, that is not a church. Now, we should make sure that we're not confused by this statement because a, a lot of evangelicals tend, tend, tend to be. Evangelicals think that here Paul is talking about their bodies because they have often been told that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit also. Don't panic. Take a breath. Okay, that is true. But that is the subject of chapter 6, verse 19, not chapter 3, verse 16. 
Chapter 6, verse 19 teaches that, yes, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. But here, Paul uses the phrase temple of God. He's referring not to individuals, but he's referring to them collectively, uh, uh, to the entire congregation as the temple of God. Again, let me say the Holy Spirit of God inhabits our congregation like he inhabits no other gathering of human beings, saved or lost. That makes this unique. His very presence among us causes things to happen that will not happen in any other kind of assembly. In verse 17, we see the consequence of of this. For the, for the temple of God is holy, which ye are holy. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. I read that wrong. Again, you see the word ye, or y'all, okay, plural, which lets us know again that Paul is dealing with the church as a whole, as a group of people, not individuals, like he will in chapter 6, verse 19. When we begin to realize from verse 16, that just as the Shekinah glory of God dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat and the tabernacle, so also the Holy Spirit of God dwells in our midst, then we begin to realize the certainty that there's a consequence to this. Something happens because of this. And what's the consequence of the Holy Spirit's presence? Holiness. That's the consequence of the Holy Spirit's presence. Now, this does not mean we are necessarily less sinful than other groups of people are, but it does mean that we are set apart unto God as a church like those other people are not set apart for God. Now, of course, only God is is holy uh, so far as being pure and without defilement is concerned and we realize that when the word holy is applied to God's people or anything uh, that holy refers to being set aside uh, for God's special use and that's where the word sanctity comes in we're sacred we're set apart we're special as, as, as supposedly wonderful as, as unconnected Bible studies are, as supposedly wonderful as clubs and seminars are, they are not termed in the word of God. Now, they're not termed in the word of God as something which is sacred unto God. They have no designated sanctity. They are not holy. And I think this needs to be repeatedly pointed out to us that the church is unique as gatherings of God's people. You know, while churches have, at times in the past, had, I mean, hypocrisy and wickedness and sins of all sorts, just as can creep into any kind of gathering, at the same time, they have been holy. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit of God has always been in their midst. That's what makes it holy. And though our our church may not be highly esteemed by the untaught or the unregenerate, Those who know the word of God realize that this congregation is very, very important to the Holy Spirit of God. He he cares for us, and he will continue to care for us. He he lives in our midst. He, 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 He gives us sanctity. He sets us apart, and he wants our position of holiness to become our practice of holiness 
We are set apart for his specific use. We are positionally set apart. Now he says, be holy as I am holy. We need to live up to our identity. The number three is a place of activity. And there's two activities, I think, here that we need to be reminded of. There's the act of defiling, and there's the act of destroying. Pretty grim, actually. Verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Uh, you know, there are enemies of this church who would defile her. And the word defile means to corrupt, to, to bring to a worse state. Uh, it's a pretty broad term. It can conceivably apply to anyone who says or does anything to bring harm to the church. Um, how would that be done? It could be done by bad-mouthing a church so as to interfere with her efforts to uh, win the loss to Christ. It could be done by opposing her efforts to conduct the various ministries that God has called her to undertake. It can even be done by, by spiritual lethargy, by lack of commitment uh, to the ministries of the church, doing nothing when something should be and could be done. Or it could be done by members bringing open sin into the midst. In short, defilement of a church takes place. It can take, take place from within the church. It can take place from, from without the church by people who are saved as well as people who are lost. And when a church member commits sexual sin, he or she defiles the congregation by harming its testimony. Should a believer who is saved out of drugs or alcohol slip and fall back in to that for a short period of time, they harm their church and its ability to, to, to win folks to Christ. When someone disagrees over vital doctrines that are clearly taught in the word of God, that person who refuses to heed the instruction of scripture and who influences others to do likewise brings harm to the church. Now, a church member may think to themselves, how can my personal sin possibly harm the church if nobody finds out that's because the bible says that when one member suffers all members suffer first corinthians 12 26 and when they commit sin they defile themselves therefore when they defile themselves uh, they defile the church body that they are a part of see no man is an island no one sins in isolation Right? No one sins in isolation. Your sin always affects other people. Yet those of us who have been in churches a very long time know that there are those who harm churches. But we can praise God because we have a protector. We have a, uh, a rock. We have a fortress. There is one who will destroy those who defile us. And as much as we might want it to, um, the word destroy doesn't mean to annihilate or burn in hellfire or, you know, lightning bolt from heaven. You know, it's, it actually is translating the same Greek word as defile. Okay. So what we have here then is the law of sowing and reaping applied to the church. 
if someone harms or tries to harm the church, it'll come back to them. They will reap what they sow, even if somebody harms the church by not trying or not serving. Uh, maybe not right away, maybe not in the near future, but at some point the chickens are going to come home to roost, so to speak. Uh, it'll show up in their personal lives, in their public lives, in their marriages, in the kids' lives. Wherever God decides to put it, those that will defile the church, God will defile. For every damaging activity that takes place against the church, there will be that corresponding reaction against that effort, uh, and it'll certainly be more, more damaging in nature because the response is not going to come from us. No, God fights for us. It'll, 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 it'll come from God himself. So whatever your activities in this life happen to be, you need, you need to be warned. Um, not to allow those activities to bring harm to your church. Uh, God is intolerant of that. I mean, do you enjoy a sport? Well, that's, that, that's great. Enjoy your sports on, on times other than when your church gathers. Do you like quality family time? That's great. You should. The best quality time that you should have is when you gather together to worship God as a family in church. You like to rest when you're tired? I know I do. Rest sometime besides when your church gathers for worship and instruction. Kids like sports? That is awesome. Teach them young that sports need to take a back seat to church attendance, to the things of God. We must learn to never openly wage war against the church of God. If we do, God will disrupt our lives. And neither should we wage a quiet war against Christ's church by undermining the mission. If we do, God will undermine us. We need to see that, that we call it by the way we live. A member needs to support their church's ministry open and publicly get behind the mission, participate in its ministries, and then Christ will openly bless that life, that marriage, those, those children. So, you know, we, we live in an age of um, diversion. We said a couple of times on Sunday nights that, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Wednesday nights, that Satan uses WMDs, it's weapons of mass distraction. And one of Satan's greatest accomplishments has been to use nominal Christians and real Christians ministries to, to divert the nominal Christians and sometimes even the real Christians from the true significance of the institution of the local church. We, we need to see that, that Satan's goal has been to divide and to conquer, to split Christians into small groups that will be much less effective than a single large powerful group of believers that are sold out for God. It's, it's, it's really get Christians so busy doing good things that they lose sight of the most important thing, which is Christ and his commandment to, to, to you know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience to Christ. Now, no, I, I don't know your particular situation, of course, uh, as, as it happens to be, but, but, but one thing I can be confident of is, is that the institution of, of the New Testament church, this congregation that you attend is, is, is the single and, and unique instrumentality according to scripture 
which is God's tool for our day in this place. Um, I, I, I hope you are as convinced or becoming convinced in your heart and mind of this, but perhaps each of us could spend a little more time reminding each other of these truths so that we, we might be as convinced as we should be, so we might understand that, that as God indwells us as a group of believers and as he moves us forward, we are cohesive, we are, we are unified, and then we are because we have God's hand on us, a spiritual force to be reckoned with as we push the kingdom of God into the kingdom of darkness in Juno. But that's not going to happen unless we understand how important God views this church. Only a church is God's temple. Only a church is a holy assembly. Only a church of the groups we've mentioned is, is, is said in scripture to be avenged by God. And we have prayed and we will continue to pray that, that God blesses your efforts as you serve him here in this local assembly. As you work as part of this body to see the body grow, not just in numbers, but in spiritual maturity. We are connected through the Holy Spirit in a way no other group of people can possibly be connected. That makes us unique and submitted to us, sub submitted to that, that makes us, through the power of God, a powerful force to be reckoned with. It's none of us, but it's all of Christ. We are his church. We are his body. And we are unique. We are indwelt by the God, the Holy Spirit. chew on that for a little bit. Stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Father, we want to thank you that you have uh, pulled us together as you have. Um, and Lord, thank you that you've designed a church to be a wonderful mix of all kinds of people. All of them saved, baptized, members, but yet from so many different walks of life, so many different uh, social strata, so many different backgrounds, so many different education levels, all of us brought together, being one in Christ. Father, I pray that we would understand how unique you have made us and the potential that we have to serve you when we are united. Father, please do this work in us. If we try to do it, we're going to mess it up. But Father, because your spirit indwells us, you can pull us together in a way that no one else can. Father, may we be a body of Christ that is effective to your glory, that does your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mike, would you come ahead?